Seated. For those who are heading to Reach Kids, you can head out now. Miss Katie is here, so that's always an exciting time. Um, all right. And pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together and reflect on Jesus. And not just reflect on, we can be in his presence and be reminded of the glory that you've given us in him, the salvation you have given. Father, I ask that that would be our heart song, that we'd cry out that you would give us nothing but Jesus, that we would live in him, that we would rejoice in him, that we would worship in him. Father, I ask that you'd use the preaching of your word, that you'd use Romans to teach us to have more of Jesus and to rejoice more in the promises that we have in him. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so last week we saw and talked about Christian religion, the religion of Christianity, and talked about how that the religion of Christianity is supposed to bring us to an end to ourselves. They would stop trying and working so hard that instead we'd put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are saved by faith and not by works. And today, today Paul is going to talk to us about kind of the, the objections to that. Because the reality is being saved by nothing but faith uh, is uncomfortable. And we don't naturally believe that. And so we start to come up with doubts. It's just kind of just an invention of Protestantism. That we're making excuses. We're making it too easy on ourselves. Is this really the real way to salvation? That we just put our faith in Christ and Christ alone? And Paul, Paul is anticipating those questions and he's kind of getting at them in a, in a particularly Jewish way. And he's anticipating a very certain question that the Jews might ask. And their question is, well, what about Abraham? What about our history? What about the Old Testament? What about way back when? Were all of those saints, were they saved by faith alone? Is this the, really the way it's always been? What about the Old Testament? Now, I recognize that that's not the question that is on the forefront of all of your minds. How was Abraham saved? All right, none of you lost any sleep about that this week. And you're not, you're not concerned especially about, well, what about the Old Testament? Like, how, how are they saved? You don't care. You just, <laughs> some of you care. Some of you probably care too much. And you'll love this. But uh, there's a deeper question here. So yes, we're asking, okay, how was Abraham saved? But I hope we can get to the larger question of, like, how are we saved? Is it really about faith alone? Is this something that we want to believe, or is this found in Scripture? Has this been found in Scripture throughout all of history? And we're going to see today that, yes, it has always been about faith alone. And it is about faith alone, and that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. So we're going to be looking at Romans 4. Looking at Romans 4. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to go through all, the whole chapter. So we have a lot of Romans 4 ahead of us. And we're going to see that by faith alone, Abraham was saved. That the people of God throughout history have been saved by faith alone. And then we're going to see why it matters. That it matters because faith alone protects the promises of God. 
that faith alone protects the promises of God. So, let's look first at Romans 4, verse 1, asking the question, how was our father Abraham made right with God? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So they're asking, okay, there's this circumcision thing. There's our father, Abraham. How was he saved? And they're contending here that if he were saved by works, he would have grounds of boasting. But before God, he cannot. He cannot boast because the scriptures tell us very clearly how Abraham was made right with God. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now before we can go any further, what exactly did Abraham believe? When it said that he believed God, what was he believing? He was believing in a dual promise. A dual promise. First, God said to him, look up to the heavens. Look up to the stars and try to count them. That is going to be your generation. Those are going to be your offspring. Those are going to be your children, as many as the stars in the sky. <laughs> and then he goes on. And he tells them about the land that they're going to dwell in. That he's going to give Abraham offspring, infinite offspring, and this land forever. And Abraham believed him. Now, it's remarkable that Abraham believed him because he didn't have very good starting materials. All right, he had, he had an old woman wife who was infertile. All right, not, not a good starting point, but that's the reality. That is what he was given. And he's looking like, okay, God, like, I don't know how we're going to put feet on these promises. Uh, and then he was also, he was a, a foreigner in a foreign land, and God showed him this land. And we think, okay, God, God showed him this land. This is going to be your promised land. The land between the rivers, the land between the Nile River and the Canaan. Uh, there's a problem with that land. I think we think of it like, like, you know in the Lion King, where he's like showing him, like, this is your vast kingdom. And we think of it as like wide open plains, like virgin America ready to be, to be conquered. No, the problem was there were already people there. When he looked out, he didn't see open rolling plains. He saw... He saw towns, and he saw cities, and he saw sheep being herded, and the problem was this land was already conquered. It was already given to someone. And so if Abraham is thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this, he has no, no idea how it's going to happen. When he, when he talks about the land, the text itself calls it the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, these aren't just annoying names. It's a, the, the point is, this is already someone's land. Someone else already saw this was a really good land. That's why they live there. And so when Abraham believed, he was believing in spite of himself, in spite of the evidence, in spite of the things that he could imagine. He was trusting that God alone could do this because he wasn't going to do it himself. And God says that that belief, 
that faith, just believing that this impossible promise was going to happen, was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's the key word, counted. It's reckoned, it's charged to him as righteousness. And we have to see that there's an imbalance there. The faith, faith is in some sense pretty easy. Righteousness is not. Righteousness requires a lifetime of perfect obedience. Of doing justice, of doing right, of doing good. And yet God, God takes this faith, which is not righteousness, and he counts it as righteousness. As a perfect fulfillment of everything that God would require of him. When we understand what that counted word means, we see that this is by grace. That Abraham could not have earned righteousness, but God counted his faith as that righteousness. And then Paul, he, he interprets that for us. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Alright, so because Abraham was, was counted as righteous, was reckoned as righteous, it was a gift. This was not a wage. Abraham was not employed by God. It wasn't a this, you, know, you do this and I'll, I'll give you that. No, this was a gift. And we see it as a gift if we understand what, what it really meant. If you look at the reward, right, near infinite offspring, to have this land forever and ever in your charge, these are not things that you earn. This is a gift of God. And the glories that God promises, they're not, they're not things we could work for. They're beyond anything we could work for. They're given by grace. Now I think of this, uh, in seminary, we are, all, we are all extremely poor. Everyone was poor, no one had anything. We spent all of our money on grad school um, and we're guaranteed low paying jobs. So no one had any money. All right, and I remember this one kid, he came in, he came in after Christmas with like cashmere camel three, four quarter length jacket and like comes walking in and everyone's like, Oh, because <laughs> we all wanted to be fancy, uh, fancy theologians in the, in the order of, of Van Til. And so we were all very impressed. <laughs> and and he, had to, he had to tell everyone, no, no, this is a gift. This is a gift. This is a gift. Don't stone me. I haven't misspent God's, God's gift to me. No, there's some things you know it's a gift because it's, it's outside your, your pay charge. You couldn't afford it. I hope that we see the promises of God like that. I think Abraham saw them as that. This is nothing you could work for. All right. Let's keep going. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who does not work. It's not just that Abraham had faith. It's more, it's more than that. It's that he refused to work for it. To the one who does not work for righteousness, he will find the reward. He will be blessed. And David says that. David says that even. This is another champion of the faith. He's saying the exact same thing. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks to the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord 
will count not his sin. So it is those who do not work who receive the blessing of God. It is by faith alone. Nothing but faith. Are you working for the blessings of God? You'll know, you'll know if you treat God like an employee. Or like, like an employer, pardon. If you are demanding things from God. If you have a list of expectations that you charge God with. If you think that, that by doing A, B, and C, he owes you something. You're treating him like an employer. Now, there's, there's two problems with that. First, first, we're not very good employees. That David just said, no, blessed are those who are forgiven for their sins. Because that's what we do well. When we do works, we do sin. And what is the, what's the wages of sin? What's your payment for sin? The only thing you've earned is death. The wages of sin is death. And so if you want to work for God, you can. And he'll give you exactly what you deserve. He'll give you the death that you've earned. That's the only thing we're going to be working for. That's the first problem. Second problem. If you want to work for God, you're going to cheapen everything that he offers to you. But yeah, you can probably work for, for a happy life and for a decent house and for a relatively good family. You can probably pull that off. But you're talking about the infinite God. And God doesn't offer a minimum wage. That's what we're settling for. If you want to work for God, we're settling for minimum wage. To be working in the kingdom of God as a servant, as a butler, as a slave. When the promises of God are promises that, no, he'll treat you like a son, like a daughter, who doesn't get a wage. The sons and daughters get gifts. Lavish, amazing gifts from an infinite God. That is what he's offering to us. You don't get those things by working. You get those things as gifts, as blessings. And so I charge you, please, let's, let's, let's not be so foolish as to try to work for God or to settle as working for God. Abraham did not work for God. He believed in the promises. All right. Now that the second question comes about, well... But what about works? What about works? We all talk about how all the things we have to do. And the favorite work of the Jewish people was, well, what about circumcision? Isn't that the work that we have to do? There is work associated with the covenant. And so they asked that in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? You could equate this question to something relative of like, yeah, but how do, I, how do I get a hold of those blessings? How do I know I'm chosen? How do you know that you're, you're in the kingdom? How do you know that you're a child? They're asking that question. After all, Abraham had given this, this call to be circumcised. What is the meaning of it? We'll look more against, at, at verse 9. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. 
how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. All right, so Paul's noticing something here. Paul was, uh, Abraham was given his righteousness long before he did this work of circumcision. Long before he performed and did the right thing. And Paul's reminding us that that's always the order. That it's always faith, it's always righteousness given, and only afterwards comes work. That the works always follow, and that the works actually point us back to faith. So we are looking at what is, what was this circumcision supposed to mean? What was circumcision supposed to be about? Why was he called to that work afterwards? Why was that the natural outflow of faith received righteousness? Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Two things. Circumcision is a seal and a sign. First, a seal. What's a seal? A seal is, is a king gives an edict. He says what you're supposed to do. And you look for a seal. Because if there's no seal there, the king didn't say anything. We have a birth certificate. Is this actually issued by the government or not? You check the seal. Are you actually married? Is there a seal on your marriage certificate? That's why they want to see the official copies. Because there's a seal on it. And the seal confirms this is from, from the person in authority. That's what circumcision is. It's a seal of the righteousness of God. That Abraham could have just made this all up. And so God gives him a seal that, no, this is righteousness from God. It's official. It's from me. That is what circumcision is. And so whenever Abraham thought about his circumcision, he thinks of the fact yeah, no, I, I did receive that righteousness already. It would point him back. A seal of righteousness by faith. It was also a sign. A sign. It was a symbolic representation of how this righteousness was attained. That one of Abraham's offspring would be cut off. There would be a bloody sacrifice of one of the offspring... And for a long time, they, oh, they thought it, was, it would be Isaac. And as Abraham was ready to strike Isaac down, no, the angel stopped him and we saw that, no, it wasn't actually Isaac. It was some future offspring. But some future offspring would be cut off, would be sacrificed. And that's where the righteousness by faith would come from. It was a sign and a seal. Now combining that knowledge... There's nothing more foolish than to try to be righteous by circumcision. The point was never circumcision. It was about the faith. It was about the faith that it, this all pointed to. Everything was pointing back to faith. And everything points us back to the faith that we initially had, the righteousness we've had in Christ by faith. Look at verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well 
and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was all about the faith. That the point of all of this ritual was a point to faith alone. That's the point. So how do you know if you're in the covenant? How do you know if you're a child of God? Because you're baptized? Because you've, you've done communion? Because you've been a good Christian this week? Because you feel like it? No. You ask yourself, where is my faith? What am I trusting in? Because baptism, baptism is just looking back to the offspring that died and was resurrected for you. To put your faith in that yet again. Communion was to point you back to the fact that by faith, there had been a sacrifice. And you ate that sacrifice. You drank that sacrifice's blood so that you might live. Good deeds. Good deeds. When you do something good, we think we are, we're putting like a, into a charge account and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm on my road to heaven. I'm doing good. I'm on the path. Maybe God will call me righteous one day. That's not the point. Every time you do something good, every time you do something relatively good, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to look at ourselves and say, oh man, I must not be the dead sinner I used to be. Something happened somewhere along the way and I'm different than I was. God must have given me his righteousness. He must have given me righteousness by faith and it's somehow playing out. That's what good deeds are supposed to do for us. To point us back to the faith that we had and the righteousness we have already had by faith. That's the whole point. It has always been by faith alone. And our whole Christian lives are supposed to be reminding us that it has been by faith alone. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system, every ritual points back to the fact that it was by faith alone. All right. Final point. Why do we care? Why is this such a big deal? Why are we so up in arms about faith alone? Why are Protestants so crazy about this? Why do we fight for it tooth and nail? We fight for faith alone because it's the only way that God's promises are true promises. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he'd be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If the promise were conditioned upon obedience, upon works, upon our performance, then it wouldn't be a promise. It'd be a job application. It'd, it'd be a wager, a bet even. If you do this, I'll give you this. If you try hard enough, if you're a good enough employee, I'll give you the promises. That's not a promise. God has not given us a proposal. He's given us promises. And we suck at this because we are used 
We are used to fake promises. We're used to contracts. We're used to negotiations. That all of the other gods treat us like that. That, you know, if, if you're beautiful, people will love you. That's the guarantee, and so work at it. If you are wealthy, people will respect you. So work at being wealthy. If you are good, you will be acceptable. That everything, everything works like that. That's how all, most of our relationships work. That's how we treat our bosses. That's how we treat one another. That's often how we treat our spouses. And no, if, if you give me this, I'll give you that in return. Which is why it's so hard to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not a contract. The gospel is a promise. That God will do it. And there's nothing you can do to mess it up. You cannot be fired. You can't... You can't do anything. I don't know. I can't think of anything that, that doesn't make sense to try to talk about it. You cannot break the promise because it's not your promise, it's God's. And you have no part in it but to believe the promise that is given. That's the point. And that's the assurance that we have. That yeah, he promises beauty and glory and acceptance and honor because he just wants to give it to us. All we have to do is believe. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom we be believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We could not do these things. That's why we trust a God who can bring things into existence. Who can bring dead people like us to life. That's the point. That is where we're putting our faith. Now the final question then is, how's your faith? Because faith is a lot harder than it looks. We offer out faith and say, oh, it's, it's by faith alone. But faith is terrifying. That you, you can't trust yourself at all. You can't trust the things that you see. You can't trust the raw material. If your wife is horrible and you have no land, you still have to believe. And that's, that's terrifying for us. Because then we have to let go of all the reins. We have to let go of everything. Jesus, take the wheel. And that's hard to do. What if our faith is weak? What if our faith is, is not well grounded? What if we have doubts? Look at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope so that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham did not waver. 
He did not doubt. He did not fall. Now, that is the most gracious depiction of Abraham that has ever been. Because Abraham did not do this. He wavered left and right. He doubted. He doubted all the time. He doubted so much that he looked at Sarah and figured, well, that's not going to work. So he got a whole nother, well, a whole nother lady. He'd tell you, oh, maybe, maybe that means Hagar, the servant girl, and I'll have kids through her. That'll work, right? And he went to God and actually said, God, how, how will you take this kid? I, he came up with a works-based plan B on how to fulfill the promises of God. And I, I've been thinking through, how do you, how do you, how does Paul get off saying this? That this is how Abraham was. It must be that that God is a lot more gracious with our faith than we think he is. If Abraham's faith can be construed this way, then ye of little faith, you and me, can have faith enough. Now we're called not to doubt, but we're going to doubt. And we're going to question. But when we enter that doubt, we remember, we don't think, oh, oh my faith, my faith, my faith. This is not a chance to obsess about faith. This is a chance to look at the one who is righteous on our behalf. To look at the one we believe in. That is the point. Who is your faith in? Not how strong is your faith. Who is your faith in? Look at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's about Jesus. It's not how strong your faith is. It's whether or not your faith is in the right person, in Jesus Christ, who is dead and was resurrected. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only Son that gets to be a Son just inherently and by his own value. And he became the son of Abraham. He was circumcised on the eighth day. And he came, he came to be a servant, a slave to the law of God. And every single day he worked at it. And he worked and he worked and he worked. And he earned his glory. He earned his salvation. He earned his inheritance. And then he took what he had earned and gave it to us. And we gave him, in return, the wages of sin is death. We made that trade. Jesus worked so that we would not have to. And Jesus died because we do not work as we should. That Jesus was the offspring. Jesus was the one who was cut off. Jesus was the bloody sacrifice, the offspring that would perish. That is the point. That we have faith in Christ so that Jesus went to the cross for us, Jesus died for us, Jesus worked for us, and Jesus was raised to life for us. And now that promise is guaranteed. 
that every promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That we are promised eternal life. That we are promised an inheritance. We're promised he's going to come back. <laughs> We're promised that we will inherit the, the world. That we will be joyful and glorious and everything that we have ever wanted will be ours in Jesus Christ. All right. What do we do with this? Are you living like it's the promise or like it's, a, like it's an employment opportunity? Is it a promise to you? Do you live like there's nothing you can do to lose it? Because that's the fact. Put your faith in Christ. There's nothing but faith alone in nothing but Jesus that will save you. That is the point. And I ask that that might give you amazing freedom and joy to know that these promises are promises, not conditions. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the covenanting, promise-making God and that you keep your promises and that you've kept your promises in Jesus Christ. That if it were up to our own works, if it were up to our performance, we would earn only death for ourselves. But instead, Father, you, you kept your promise in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all we need is faith in him. Even a wavering, broken, weak faith in the one who is broken and weak on our behalf. Father, would you help us to live according to the promises? Would we have great joy that these things are guaranteed? Father, would that change the way that we live? That we'd obey, that we would worship, and we've had great joy before you because we know what you've done in Jesus Christ alone. We pray in his name.